Hello and welcome to Plan Francisco, the new podcast that interviews the best and brightest financial planning professionals in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Maxwell Schmitz. I need a plan, a magic key. Today, my guest is Joel Malakoff of Malakoff & Associates. I was excited for our inaugural episode with Joel because of his uniquely nuanced outlook on his role as an advisor. Joel's clients love him for his dynamic worldview, his comprehensive approach, and the higher purpose that drives him. Pay close attention to his review of common client mistakes, especially as it relates to the temptation of Bay Area technology stocks. It was a joy for me to do this interview, and I hope you enjoy too. Joel Malikoff, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Maxwell. It's a pleasure. I always like to start just by asking you know, you to describe exactly what it is you do. Yeah, so what we do is comprehensive wealth management. We have a model that is really carefully chosen and put together in order to deliver what we believe are amazing results for our clients. And the data is in that our clients really do appreciate the work we're doing for them. So it's not just that I feel good about it, but really it's validated by the results themselves and by the clients on testimonies. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so in any case, you know, people have ideas about what wealth advising is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can run the gamut of things anywhere from, you know, they're initially thinking somebody who manages uh, investments for them. For us, that's really table stakes. What we're really trying to do is manage their total financial picture. Okay. So that involves areas such like wealth enhancement, which would also include tax planning. Mm and it includes cash flow planning as well. Mm -hmm. So we wanna make sure that the tax planning side that they're not having more um, of their money taken than they need to. Oftentimes that involves outside professionals. And then uh, for cash flow planning, that's pretty straightforward. People Mm -hmm. have goals. Mm -hmm. You wanna make sure that the money is going in the right places to accomplish those goals. So that's wealth enhancement. Then there's wealth transfer, and that's making sure that your assets pass to the next generation purposefully. Mm-hmm. and that With they, intention. With intention. And that's the goal always. You want to make sure that you're intentional in what you're doing. So the next generation potentially receives it or the charities that you would have um, decided on uh, receive it in the right way. So that's wealth transfer. And then for wealth protection, it's making sure that your assets are not unjustly taken. A lot of that is insurance planning. Could be on the life insurance, long-term care side, but it could also be property and casualty or business exposures as well. Mm-hmm. The goal is we want to make sure that people are covered. And then finally, there's charitable planning. And this mm-hmm. ties in it, probably with our greatest um, conviction and core mm-hmm. as an office. Uh, what I realized is that we have a habit, so my observation, that we have a habit of helping people exceed their financial goals of what they thought they needed Mm. and they come to a place of realizing they have more than they expected there's an abundance that they have and from there we help them live generously and that's our greatest joy yeah Yeah. so it's fun you know you see people go oh my gosh you know five years ago i was wondering really if this retirement dream was still alive Mm -hmm. and wait a minute i reached it a year earlier than i thought or two years earlier for a lot of my younger clients who are in their 40s we're actually projecting retirements at age 55 and 57. Mm. And then from there, they'll have the option of working if they want to. Mm-hmm. So there's that sense like, okay, there's momentum here that's almost unexpected or exceeds expectations. 
And now, shoot, what am I going to do? I really do need to think about what the greater purpose of my life is. So then enter the idea of living more generously. That's a really fun conversation to have with your clients in general, I would imagine. right? So when you explain these four different um, pools, essentially, or four different stages of planning, do you view them as stages or are they just, you know, you're trying to hit all four with one with one client at a time? Or are you kind of incrementally working your way through from the wealth enhancement to the transfer to the protection to the uh, charitable? Yeah, giving? usually when we sit down, we have a process we go through. We get to know people and what matters most to them. And from there, then we plan a course in these various areas. One thing, obviously, wow. that I did not mention that is really relevant to our conversation as well and the work we've done with your group is also DI insurance. Mm -hmm. Disability insurance has actually become a significant part of that offering. Great. And in the past, it wasn't. It's been something that we've added in the last four or five years. But as we've worked with more and more people who have mm -hmm. significant assets but who are also self-employed and not covered under a plan especially, those are people we're really wanting to enhance in terms of their protection in order to make sure that they do hit those goals. Yeah. Thankfully, we haven't had a whole lot of situations where that's necessary, mm -hmm. but I found that when it does pop up, oh my goodness, people are so grateful that they have that coverage. Certainly. So, yeah. Oh, great. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the demographics of your practice? What are the type of people that you're working with? Are they retirees or are they at the beginning of their careers typically? Are they, you know, W-2 employees or business owners? Is there any sort of, um, you know, pattern that you see? Yeah, so I see the landscape changing. I Obviously, there's a lot of baby boomer wealth, and there's so much mm -hmm. talk today about how in the world are you going to take advantage of this revolution of people or this glut of people that have assets, that are the boomers, and mm -hmm. these statistics of how many assets enter the market or people enter the retirement uh, market. My personal view is this. I think that's great. But if I really think about the long-term perspective of my business, mm -hmm. I don't want to just be targeting those people. Sure. I think that's actually probably being short-sighted. Mm -hmm. That says I simply want to maybe grow my assets. Mm -hmm. What I'd really much rather be effective at is taking on people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who have mm -hmm. great earning power mm -hmm. and set them on a track for success. Absolutely. And, you know, this is back to the former question, how do we bring people through? And I mentioned that we have a specific kind of course. Usually we start with wealth enhancement, then with, um, and usually it goes to wealth protection f after that, then wealth transfer, and then finally the charitable planning, or that might be mixed in there. Mm -hmm. But what we find is, and this is my conviction, I want a business that looks like uh, that is something I want to own 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just own a business that's profitable today. Mm -hmm. So I try to look at it more that way. So I'm interested in how you reach millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an Xer myself, so I understand just enough. I think it'd be tougher if I were a little bit older advisor to be able to relate. But um, recent studies I've done have shown me just that millennials are really seeking purpose mm -hmm. in a lot of what they do. One of the reasons that they're sometimes called lazy is because they don't see the connection between what they're doing and their greater purpose or a greater service to humanity. <laughs> As a millennial, I appreciate that viewpoint. <laughs> you go. So you're a millennial, and I, yeah. so that indicates we have a few years difference between us. But right. I think um, that's one of the things that really stands out to me. And I think 
that is a person I would actually rather work with is a person who's really purposeful mm-hmm. or who's asking those questions from the beginning. Right. And it may mean that socially responsible investing is part of it. Um, so we want to make sure that we're really addressing those things from start to finish. But you might address things in different orders for different people in different life stages. Mm-hmm. You know, it just I don't try to be formulaic. Sure. What I've just shared is generally how we approach it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a linear thinker by nature. Mm. I approach things as a circular person. Mm. Um, and so for me, it may mean that I'm going to be doing a little bit of bouncing back and forth yeah. or that I'm just trying to be thoughtful about what means the most at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. No, that's definitely, I think, a nuanced approach in terms of what a typical advisors that I've seen in, in this arena are doing. You know, typically there's a, you know, it's very se- sequential in, in the manner that they're working through. And, uh, that circular nature, I think, is, is probably a value added that your firm uh, uses to differentiate itself. And it sounds like it's inherent. It's just part of your personality trait, too, which is fascinating. So um, let's let's back up a little bit. I would love to uh, kind of work um, through this question that um, addresses who is responsible for bringing you into this business. Yeah, so... The way that I got involved, our firm has been around for 55 years now. It started oh, in wow. 1963. Hmm. And I'm actually the third generation, the second oh. generation in my family. I feel like in many ways I stumbled into it. Hmm. Uh, I did not intend to be doing this. I thought I was going to be working for the UN or Oxfam or World Vision, oh, wow. doing international community development work. That's what I have master's degrees and designations hmm. for. Um, but all those doors seemed to close as far as going out in the field. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself um, in spending a year basically surfing and subsisting and slowly going in debt. Oh, uh, wow. And my parents actually came to me. By that time, my dad had already done the buyout of the previous generation some 10 wow. years earlier. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, um, we could use help for five or six months, uh, if you want to come on up, if you want to move back to L.A. and go back to surfing there all the time, you can. Uh, it's up to you. Uh, but what happened is I came up and I discovered that I was able to connect more of who I was with what we do in financial services here than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. And about that time, my brother, who had been working in the firm, I think decided it wasn't the best fit in mm. terms of financial services. He needed to try something else. Mm-hmm. And so I took over his position. It's The rest is history. Wow. But even in that journey, I tried to go away um, after a couple of years to serve for two years and do more um, work like with uh, micro enterprise development, micro loan development with organizations. And it seemed like all those doors closed. Mm -hmm. So at some point, I just felt like there's a sovereign guiding hand that Mm -hmm. God somehow intended for me to be in financial services and not go overseas. Mm -hmm. So what I do here is really out of that purpose. And that's why for me, the giving generously component is so important. And I found this, that even it's true in my own life, choosing to live generously along the way is a decision. It's not just something you do when you feel wealthy or something like Mm -hmm. that. But if you have built that into your lifestyle along the way, A, I think it makes for happier people, Mm -hmm. but it also makes for more purposeful and intentional living. And people who live that way, who live on purpose, just seem to be happier in general. So to me, not only is it a part of being a great global citizen, you know, Mm -hmm. participating in a greater design, I think that God would have for people, but it also is happier living. 
Right. I don't know. Win, win, win. So yeah, I'm completely. thinking, uh, yeah, it's a great thing. So I feel really mm. fortunate because what I do here, I have sense that. So even sometimes I've tied uh, objectives in a year in terms of charitable um, giving. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want my clients to sponsor X number of AIDS orphans in Uganda because I wow. went and worked with AIDS orphans in Uganda back in 2011 with my wife. Um, you know, I'd like to see X number of orphans sponsored, mm. or it could be I'd like to see $150,000 of just client funds go specifically to things. I mm. want appreciated stock to be handled in this way for people. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what we're doing. We're working with appreciated stock and mm. other investments where people would be paying a ton if they just went and cashed it out to do something. Sure. But we help them create uh, really solid strategies that are really not that difficult to administrate. So it's really fairly straightforward planning. But if you're Mm. not into that, it's not always stuff that's intuitive. So those are things we bring to the table that are really out of our core convictions. So it sounds like your purpose really matches up with that, with this side of the planning process. Is it safe to say that's probably the favorite part of what you do on a daily basis? Absolutely. Yeah. I was sitting, I was at Wharton last week listening to one of the professors there about marketing and really what your brand is and what it stands for. And I just thought, really, what we do is we help people realize financial abundance and live generously. Mm. And that is my life's purpose as well. So it's no surprise mm-hmm. I probably a- attract other people that think like me. Right. But, I mean, that's a part of having a brand sure. anyway. Yeah. Sure. No, that's a beautiful brand to have. Certainly not a common one in this uh, line of work in, in many cases. Uh, what let, Let's kind of think, of, I want to dive into a little bit more of a general question. Uh, are there any common mistakes that you see clients making or where, where do you identify um, maybe the most common solutions that you typically provide? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things that we observe. Typically, when somebody comes in with a DIY portfolio, Mm. one of the biggest things we notice is we either notice what I would consider kind of a bifurcated risk pattern, and it's kind of like things are undiversified and Mm. super risky on one side, and then they hold a ton of cash. (laughs) So it's like 100% risk on and 100% cash Uh without a lot of diversification. And to me, there's room for a lot of investment in the middle. And what is the role of bonds? What is the role of diversification in terms of making sure you're not just in FANG, for Mm -hmm. example, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Let's make sure that you are invested and you're diversified. Yes, in the short term, those things may do really, really well. And over the last few years, you'd have an incredible return profile. Mm-hmm. The issue is that diversification really protects you long term. Mm-hmm. As I say to people, risk management is not sexy. <laughs> and you're oftentimes leaving what feels like money. It feels like you're leaving money on the table. But I find people really grateful when things go sideways or they go down. So those are probably some of the big ones as far as assessing risk that way. And that's what we see, a lack of diversification, a lack of um, understanding risk. But the other side of it, and I think this is really important, is that you get people, especially on the entrepreneurial side, they are so confident in their ability to make money. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people I I serve, that confidence is Mm well-placed. They're great at generating capital and making money. The challenge is they're not always good about thinking about the Mm what-ifs. 
And so I can honestly say that for a lot of my most significant entrepreneurial clients, almost to a letter, those are the people, for example, where disability insurance has been really important because they have, are not prepared. They might have a great policy in place if they pass away and they might leave millions of dollars to their spouse and their children, mm -hmm. but they're not covered in terms of something happening to them that's not a mortality-based event, but is something as simply and plainly a disability. And I think that's one of the most important areas of planning that I've discovered. And so that's what we try to do. It's one thing if somebody's covered under an employer plan, mm -hmm. you know, we always try to make sure that they're at least doing the buy-up so they're going to get a portion of it mm -hmm. uh, after tax or that they're maximizing it. There is room there sometimes to build on a supplement, mm -hmm. but it's especially for self-employed entrepreneurs. And I actually fall into that category too. It's the mm -hmm. Kool-Aid I drink and mm -hmm. finally I, I believe in it and I myself have put my dollars there. Absolutely. I have a very, very robust policy and part of it is that I'm also an active person who loves to cycle. Mm -hmm. I used to surf a lot. I can't my young children, so I don't have much time to do that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those are the things I realized that with an athletic and, and high-energy lifestyle, there's just risks, and I need to be cognizant of those and make sure I'm covering them. So I would just say that that's a part of it. And, of course, life insurance in there, too, but that's oftentimes more obvious for people. And long-term care. Mm -hmm. um, I think long-term care is something that people really – overlook and and they are really more apt to self-insure than they should be mm -hmm. even for wealthy people I think there's a great opportunity to transfer a part of that risk mm -hmm. could you uh, you know if you're a person with net worth uh, investable of two to ten you don't really probably need long-term care mm -hmm. but the question is is that if you have the ability to defer that risk or to transfer that risk to an insurance company does it make sense to do that mm -hmm. and my feeling is that in a lot of cases my clients have bigger goals and objectives and I think if you've got bigger goals and objectives why not then make sure that your estate is protected so that if the goals are for example making sure that your children are educated to the third and fourth generation and our maximum contributors to the global community, or if you have people that say, I have significant charitable um, intent, why not protect those assets so that those end charities or those, uh, those people you desire as end beneficiaries are able to get the full benefit? So that would be something I feel about long-term, even for people who could technically insure themselves. It sounds like you're describing almost just a simple leveraging technique. Does that seem appropriate to say? I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. In as much as it's true, it would be a little bit like off buying, say, a hedge or something like that mm -hmm. on your portfolio. You could look at it that way. It's mm -hmm. buying a hedge on your estate. And I mm -hmm. hadn't thought about it, but Maxwell, that's actually a great way to say it. Thank, Thank you. It just came to uh, me. Yeah. So where do you see your business, your practice, going in the next five to ten years? And, um, yeah, what, what excites you? Yeah, I think that, you know, under the current administration, thankfully, a lot of the um, headwinds that we've faced in terms of regulation, that that's backed off some. I think mm -hmm. DOL put a lot of pressure on us advisors, mm. and um, I think it had a significant impact in that it has forced additional fee compression and things like that mm -hmm. that could potentially help the uh, consumer. At the same time, it is difficult sometimes because I feel like we're naturally assumed to be um, maybe not acting in the best interests of our clients when 
for me, that's kind of a core tenet. I signed up in a way to act like a fiduciary. If I didn't want to because it's the right thing to do, you know, truthfully, I think it's better business. And I think a huge part of our profitability is that people trust that we're going to act in their best interests. Mm -hmm. And I, I see it would be really dumb for me to compromise that in any way. Mm -hmm. But I just feel like the regulatory climate after this administration is one where there's a pendulum swing that could take place. So I see it as being regulatory potentially on us. Mm -hmm. And then I also think that I'm not convinced that robo is as big a threat mm -hmm. as maybe people had thought. People still seem to value having access to advice. Mm -hmm. But what it may be doing, it, we may be doing is we may be coming up with more hybrid solutions like we may have a robo base on something that enables us to charge less in terms of fees, mm -hmm. but still gives people access. Mm -hmm. Other things I've thought about are maybe we just work out, we right now will have annual subscription agreements for people that give them access to our services. Mm. Um, but I think that's the sort of thing that we can be doing for younger people to help get them involved with the investment process when right. they're not sure exactly what they, um, why they might or what the value is of an advisor or they're afraid of the fees. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I guess you could take the fee compression as being this terrible thing where suddenly, oh shoot, my profitability is less. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, well, it really forces me to be that much more creative and maybe, just maybe, even some of the stuff that's happening from a regulatory client uh, standpoint is actually asking me to deliver my value proposition in a different way mm. that's not that they're saying you shouldn't be paid for it right. although they might be in some ways trying to do that or reduce <laughs> my pay uh, I can't say what their motives are completely or I try not to live in that range of inferring people's motives uh -huh. what I would rather say is I think it invites me to think more creatively and the challenge is you have to create those structures. Sure. The structures I don't think are there yet. So I just anticipate an evolving sort of structure about how we um, gather our fees mm -hmm. and how we we align those relationships under a increased regulatory scrutiny in various areas. So those are the things that I see in terms of being the challenges. So it sounds like that, that what you're describing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe there's a base subscription or something like that, some kind of retainer on a monthly or annual basis that the client would pay. And then there's also commissions that are available to be paid uh, with some of these products as well. Products that you would probably recommend, eat, whether or not you're accepting a fee or a commission, doesn't matter. Um, but that, that could also be part of the business model, so to speak, in, in terms of creating revenue. Absolutely. It's probably that there'll just be more of a combining of those two things. Sure. And so what we've done is positioned our business. There are clients we already charge an annual fee mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. For me, I have mine set higher just because of the background I have now and Absolutely. the client base. Uh, I already have a very strong client base, so the uh, opportunities need to be compelling for me. But for associates that I do bring on underneath me, there will be smaller subscription agreements. Sure. And yes, absolutely, we're using those today. And I feel like that's also something I like because it means that I don't have to say no to people based on the asset. Right, now. right. Because I've had some, some of my best clients are entrepreneurs and they only have a couple hundred thousand to invest. And if my minimum is a million, million five, um, 
I'm able to just say, hey, look, if you pay me X amount per year until you get to that point, mm -hmm. that's fine. And then at the point at which the revenues based on the asset center management exceed the that minimal fee, mm -hmm. then you're off to the races that way. You never have to pay out of pocket. Oh, that's and that's, that's helped me a lot in some of my best relationships. Mm -hmm. But it's back to then there's flexibility that way. And right. it also then is really how do you communicate your value? Mm -hmm. But that's an age-old proposition. Right. That's not a five to ten <laughs> years from now proposition. True. That's what we've been talking to people about the whole time. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Fascinating. And, I mean, you mentioned the technology aspect, too. I know that's, you know, the, the uh, robo-advisor is definitely a buzzword. Um, you mentioned your interest or openness to sort of collaborating with this. I think that's pretty interesting. I've heard that referred to as a Fiborg system. So instead of a cyborg, you're like a financial cyborg or a Fiborg. That's um, kind of fun. But um, yeah, are there any challenges that you see in the next five to ten years outside of the regulatory environment, just in terms of competitive, um, you know, other practices or other forces? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest things is is that uh, I think mergers and acquisitions are going to continue. Mm -hmm. um, one of the greatest opportunities that exists for people like myself who are in their 40s, and I'm in my early 40s, uh, who own businesses now, uh, is the opportunity to purchase more to help seed and grow our business mm. because the average financial advisor is much older. Completely. And so because of that, the opportunities that exist are fantastic to leverage it, but it's going to favor a couple of things. One is people who have a really clear business model, um, and then also people who have access to capital. And so um, I think those are the things that we have to continue to mm -hmm. think about is how do we maximize access to capital? Right now, LPL actually just rolled out something where they are going, they're specifically targeting top producers. Mm. In the recent conference I was at was an invitation-only event, and they said, you are automatically given access to a certain line of credit and the capital at a reduced interest rate uh, because we recognize this is one of the greatest opportunities. Wow. And for me, then it becomes a question of what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. I'm actually shifting because I'm minimizing the number of people that I take on as new clients mm -hmm. per year. Mm -hmm. I may be looking to take on two or three. Wow. What I'm really focused on is I'm really focused on growing advisors under me. So mm. if you're like me, you're, you're young, you say, I don't want this all to revolve around me or my intelligence or my smarts. Mm -hmm. um, what I'll do is I'll develop this team. Well, then what you can be doing is you can be acquiring practices. And to the extent that you sense there's going to be a good values alignment of how they've been served or a significant opportunity then to see people within your book, I think that it makes sense to do that. So to me, yeah. that's one of the biggest things I'm looking forward wow. to. Yeah. And then continuing to transition into my role as more of a leader of, uh, of advisors rather than simply being an advisor myself. Oh, no, that's interesting. So where do you plan on developing a network to to kind of emerge as an advisor, or is there something that you had in mind? Uh, create a network in terms of? I think of like maybe an association group or even within a BNI group or something like that. That's kind of where people tend to, tend to cut their teeth in terms of a leadership role, it seems, in this space. But um, would love to hear about what your plans are in that space. Well, as far as things go, so I want to make sure I that I communicated it. It's more simply, yeah, that I want to have more of a leadership role in my own oh, firm. Oh, within your practice, of course. Yeah, yeah, more in my own firm. I'm not in 
I'm not as interested in being part of associations at this point sure. because I'm so buried with the challenges of having taken on the staff that I have and building up those associates Completely. and in, and really ensuring their success. Yeah. And so that's my passion at this point, and I feel that that is going to yield me the best results long term. And then also, if I have that part down, I feel it also means that I have the ability to acquire then and to also um, really build out the impact that we have as a firm. Hmm. If you keep in mind that the goal is really to help people realize financial abundance and live generously, um, to me that's something that I want to be able to expand. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think it can just happen through our own referrals. Or it can, I'm sorry. We are doing very well through that and also professional referrals. But I think that there's a potential for acceleration. That's what I mean. There you go. If we really want to maximize, it's the acceleration of it that That's can happen. Great. Well, I'd love so. to see that. With the value system that you bring, I think a lot more people need that. The world needs that. Knowing what you know today, what would you have done differently if you are just starting out? Well, <laughs> one of the things that I do laugh about looking back is that I transitioned to starting to manage assets directly, personally, right after 2008. Uh-huh. My dad started to trans, tra, uh, transition some relationships over to me during 2008 and 2009. Interesting timing. And, yeah. And I think to myself, oh my goodness, what were we thinking? You know, oh. Because here you were, people were shell-shocked, and mm-hmm. we're doing this starting to transition relationships. And I would say... Our retention has probably been 97 or 98 oh, percent. So great. it's been really, really high. So it still went very, very well. But there were a couple people that I lost along the way. Mm-hmm. And some of it was they were actually the parents of kids in my graduating class from oh, high school. Interesting. So I think it was also this thing like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this guy is way too young. Or, right. yeah, we just see our kid. And maybe our kid maybe is or isn't where they need to be. And so uh, maybe it's a little difficult to accept that. So in in that a turbulent time, I can see In a turbulent that. time. Yeah. So I think that probably being observant of time frames is really, really helpful. Hmm. But I think there are just a ton of also personal lessons that I've learned as well, just in terms of how to manage people. Um, I was reading Pat Lencioni's book, um, the, the Ideal Team Player, and he, uh, they identify the ideal team players being humble, hungry, and smart. Mm-hmm. Humble in terms of not being high on themselves. Mm-hmm. Hungry in terms of being looking for opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then smart being uh, having EQ. Mm-hmm. I just realized there have been times where I've been too heavy on one versus another. I mm-hmm. think there were times where I was really focused on growing things over the last few years. And I might have been a bit of a bulldozer in that way. Hmm. And I think there's room for me to look back and say, there's some things I would definitely do differently in terms of how I would handle certain relationships. Mm -hmm. So I think those are probably the things that I would say. Hmm. It's expensive tuition sometimes when those things do happen. (laughs) Um, It's a good way to look at it. I mean, looking back, what would I do differently? It's, I probably would have handled myself differently, but I certainly wouldn't understand what I understand now and have the ability to make good on it if I hadn't made those mistakes. So maybe the sadness is maybe what it cost in a sense along the way, but also on the flip side, there's the realization, the hope and the prayer for, you know, the ability to rebuild at some point if there's Mm -hmm. been any broken relationships Mm -hmm. or 
also to just do right um, by more people in the future as a result of what I've learned. Mm. So I think life is like that. If you're mm. genuinely reflective, you always find things that you could do better. Right. And there are people you could have impacted more deeply. I think those are the things that really um, I think about. But at present, I can still say I'm probably about the happiest person I know. <laughs> so, I don't know. It seems to be the disposition I've seen as long as I've known you, too, certainly. But um, th- this has been a really great conversation. I just kind of wanted to close out on asking you what you hope that your clients say to themselves uh, or their peers after working with you. We do an evaluation each year, uh, and mm. we sometimes it's every two years, but we ask people what makes us different and mm. why they choose us. And for a lot of people, they say that they feel like we treat them like family. Mm. And I would say that our ability to go deep and really walk with people during difficult times Mm. is significant. My dad was an ordained minister, and he dealt with people in transition and loss and in doing church ministry. And I also, that's my background, too. I have two seminary degrees. Um, It's really something that flows pretty naturally for us is that genuine care. Mm-hmm. And I would say that what you, our clients would say is, if you want a financial planner who will really care about you and care about your best interests and work really hard to advocate for what it is that means most to you, you'd want Malakoff's, mm-hmm. plain and simple. And I feel that that's what they communicate to their friends. And uh, recently, a uh, CPA contacted one of my clients and said, would Malakoff be appropriate? And specifically, would Joel be a, an appropriate advisor? And he gave, he gave her a glowing review. And I think this is one of those relationships where I feel so, so grateful. I won, his, I won him as a client because mm-hmm. I served his mom really well, and he was so impressed with how I served his mom that he became my client. And now he's referred his son who is a, has a promising career in journalism wow. on the East Coast. And I just think that's some of the greatest affirmations that says people are trusting us to act on their, on their behalves Absolutely. in the best possible way. So I feel like that's what people would say. And then maybe the other side is that we also would have people say, I realized how I could be generous or I reached my goals in a way that I did not expect. And now I'm in a place to give in a way I that's beyond what I imagined. I am wealthier in that sense, not just monetarily, but I'm wealthier in terms of mindset than I than I was before. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't have to just clutch things and feel like I have to accumulate. I can now start to give, and in that sense, live out a definition of true wealth. Wow. Joel Malikoff, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Maxwell. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for coming to Plan Francisco. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed. Please be sure to subscribe and visit us again soon here at Plan Francisco.